Hi, this is Paul. And uh, for a lot of you in this little corner, you recognize this guy. Uh, Nate Heil has been on a mission to uh, really draft Jordan, this Jordan, into this little corner. And so you've been on Grail Country a couple times, once with John Verveke. And I was just this minute uh, watching your conversation with Sam, which was absolutely excellent. I've I, I enjoyed every minute of it so far. I'm a little, I'm about an hour and 10 minutes or so in. So I, I don't, you know, this, this is kind of upending my plans because usually I'm sort of the doorway through which the randos come into the corner and uh, <laughs> you're, you're slipping through a different gate. I don't know. I want to get too gospel of John on this, but um, here we go. <laughs> That's funny. Um. Well, oh gosh. I, well, let me ask you this question. Um, because see, Nate, Nate has always sort of a, I, I haven't been one to really go after authors because I, you know, unless I've read your book and I haven't read your book and I'll confess the only reason I haven't bought your book yet is that the Kindle version is 40 bucks and I've bought a lot of books I haven't read yet. And so 10 bucks on a book that it's like, yeah, 40. That's, that's steep. That's steep. <laughs> Yeah. So I'll 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 confess that that sin right off the bat. And <laughs> and also early on in this game, I um I I very quickly, once my channel grew to a certain size, I so, suddenly had publishers sending me books. Right. And um it's like I, I don't like just having I mean, if I if I read the book first and I'm really excited, and I want to go get the author and talk to them about the book, I will do that. But since this is kind of the other way around and and this corner is growing to the degree that there's different corners of the corner. So this is a long right. way into what what do you know about me so far? Just so I can have some <laughs> context for this conversation. Yeah, well, I talk about confessing sins up front. The answer is I don't actually know very much. Um, I, I think I said in the conversation with John and and um and Nate and Sam that that one you referenced earlier I hadn't even heard of John Verveke <laughs> so, so you know it's um I'm a stay-at-home dad so you know I'm I'm busy and uh I got four young girls so like I I do listen to a lot more podcasts now as I mentioned in that conversation as well like you know doing domestic chores or, and whatnot but so I'm kind of like exploring this stuff. So I didn't know much about him at all. I started trying to listen to his video series and kind of get caught up in what he's all about. And then I hadn't heard much uh, about anybody else in, in TLC. So uh, so I just recently, yeah, well, not recently, but about that same time, I got, I got to know you. Nate mentioned you. All I know about you, and this might even be wrong. So <laughs> all I know is that you are a... Um, you're a pastor, I think, in an urban setting, somewhere out in California. Is that Not correct? Sacramento. Good. Sacramento. Good. We're, okay. We're good. Okay. We're good. <laughs> One, two, and and you you do a lot of um, outreach uh, with different sort of demographics in the city, and I think there's some like urban sheltering stuff or or homelessness. Uh, I just or... I I didn't get through Sam's video because I had a eruption outside i listen i someone was out there cussing out a cabbie and i knew him by his voice so i had to go out there and rescue the cabbie um the poor cabbie picked this guy up he was in the hospital and there wasn't any beds in the psych ward so the hospital okay they need an address and so this guy always gives the church address and 
anyway oh, so I yeah I, I that there's that part of my life too good so. okay okay so yeah so you're very i guess maybe the way to put it is i've just heard you're very embedded in your community you're very involved in the community the church is is there it's it's sort of your whole life and i think this this is the part that i'm not as sure on i think you are affiliated with reformed christianity is, is i am a correct? minister in the christian reformed church in north america okay yes. where do you live I'm in St. Louis, just west of St. Louis. Okay, so I don't think there's any Christian Reformed churches there. Okay. Christian Reformed Church is connected to Calvin College, Calvin yes. University. Yes, yes. I actually do, do know a few people from there, at least oh. back in the day. Yeah, Calvin College. Yeah, right. It, what about like um, Beeson Divinity? Is there some kind of connection? Or is that just a... Okay. No, nope. nope. <laughs> see, nope. see, I'm starting to shoot blanks now here, but... uh. Yeah, so so that's that's kind of what I had heard, and then obviously your involvement in TLC and your discussions with Peugeot and other people. So that's that's okay. what I know. That's okay, what I know. good, good. Well, let's see, because again, usually it's people hunting me down, and so they've they've watched enough of my videos to know what I'm going on. So then I I can dispense with that whole part of the conversation because if people are watching it on my channel, they know. So a little bit about a little bit about me then. Um, I am a third generation minister in the Christian Reformed Church. My grandfather pastored churches in the Midwest during the Depression and the Second World War. Um, my Actually, my great-grandfather was an immigrant from the Netherlands who went to West mm -hmm. Michigan, sent by his father, my great-great-grandfather, who were Jews. And they got out of the Netherlands and settled in West Michigan and joined up with a Reformed Church in America. Reformed Church in America is tied to the state church. The Christian Reformed Church is a split off following um, of uh, a couple different people, but the most famous one, Abram Kuyper. And oh, so yeah, okay. Now we're getting into Kuyperian Dutch mm -hmm. Calvinism. Uh, you might recognize Alvin Plantinga, Nick yeah. Waltersdorf, um, yep. George Marsden, that tribe. Okay. Um, my father, my father, for his first 36 years, pastored a church in Patterson, New Jersey, just outside of New York City, which was an inner city congregation, mostly ministering to African Americans who moved up from the South with the Great Migration. And then there was a decent sized group of Christian Reformed churches in that area and some sort of really good hearted, mission minded people then. It used to be sort of a mission station, and then my father turned that into a church during the um, civil rights struggles in America. So that was very much my upbringing. I went to Calvin College, as was the tradition, and mm -hmm. um, and and then eventually Calvin Seminary, which is right there with Calvin College. And uh, I spent I spent seven years as a missionary in the Dominican Republic where mm -hmm. I did church development with Haitians. And and then after that, I took this call here to Sacramento, California, which is an inner city in California is quite different from Patterson. Um, the coasts are different in that way. And so I was, I've been ministering here for 25 years. Um, it, a dying congregation, most churches like this kind of have a shelf life of about 60 years. And the church is almost exactly the same age as me. And so it'd be nice if I were 10 years older, because then the church and I could sort of, I could retire at the same time the church is sunsetting, but I got a little, got a little gap in there. And about five years ago, I, um, 
I don't know. I was just always interested in people. And in the, in the 20, in the mid 20, uh, in about 2006, um, got really interested in Tim Keller watching Redeemer Press because there's something interesting, a PCA church growing in New York City. What's with that? And um, so was interested in that. And then in 2017 was watching um, what was happening around Jordan Peterson and thought, well, that's really interesting because I was reading a lot of YouTube people who were saying things like, well, I'm interested in the Bible and I, I want to go to an Orthodox church. And I thought, what's going on with that? And then I listened <laughs> to his biblical series and well, he's no evangelical, that's for sure. <laughs> and so I, I I had a difficulty finding conversation partners about this because most clergy are not interested in listening to two hours of a Jungian psychologist <laughs> ramble about the Bible. And so I made a video, um, you know, um, three reasons this pastor thinks Jordan Peterson is important. And I had no understanding of what YouTube was about. I was making videos with a member of my conversation where we talk about sports and he raps and um so that's the freddie and paul show <laughs> and so i played with youtube a little bit and i thought well, there's something about jordan peterson and youtube that are sort of similar so i thought i'll make a video because i've been blogging and nobody ever read my blog except other crc pastors let's say and um and then suddenly um i had 300 subscribers the next day and i thought well, that's strange. And so I made another video and then more came on. And when I hit about 2000 subscribers, I thought, well, this has got to stop because I do <laughs> not need um, anything disrupting my life. But I had so many emails coming to me and comments coming to me that I couldn't basically, as, as a pastor, I couldn't turn away these sheep. Mm -hmm. And so I kept making videos just sort of trying to connect up Jordan Peterson with what I had known. I was a history major in college. So George Marsden and that kind of stuff. And a little bit of my, you know, um, neo, neo reformed Calvinist theology and talking about some of that stuff. And the video channel channel just kept growing. And I, because I am a pastor, I, I was just talking to people on the internet. People just wanted to talk to me about stuff. And so I'd talk to them and then, I started sharing some of those conversations on my channel and then more and more people came on and that's where sort of this little corner had its Genesis. Mm. And I started talking to Jonathan Peugeot and then one of the, one of my, um, one of the people who watched my channel said, you really got to talk to this guy named John Vervecki, who's a colleague of Peterson's mm. in Canada. And um, he has this class Buddhism and cognitive science. And I thought, so I talked to John Vervecki and the whole thing has just continued to grow. And um, it's it's kind of become a an online community that sometimes manifests in physical form in different places hmm. where it, it's a very open conversation where we can talk about all sorts of things, theological and non-theological. And that's uh, and then Sam found his way here. I think a lot of the people who have found their way into this corner were one way or another, either Christian curious or and or church alienated mm. and found in an online space um, something that they were struggling with 
in terms of a local church. And I think, you know, so Nate, um, you, you can, if you talk, you don't have to talk to Nate too long to realize, um, yeah, Nate's relationship to a church is going to be interesting, especially if you know churches <laughs> and, and, and exactly the same for Sam. So here's a guy who in many ways is sort of like an evangelical and he comes around and says, yeah, but I, I don't, I'm not really down with that whole Trinity thing. And then the pastor sort of steps back and you talk to Sam a little more and you very quickly realize this guy knows a lot more about this than I do. So then you really <laughs> take a step back because it's like, you know, be friends with Sam or lose my job and my family. Um, not a hard <laughs> choice for a lot of pastors. So, um, and, and yeah, and so that's kind of where this goes. And so I listened to, you know, you gave a, a nice biography with Sam. And, and so I very much heard how in, in a lot of ways, you sort of fit a profile in this little corner because you're someone who grew up in a church that, um, you know, I, I actually, I spent one summer in um, Columbia, Missouri on a, uh, and suddenly in Columbia, Missouri, I got better acquainted with Christian church disciples of Christ. Yeah. And it was like, Oh, well, this is interesting. And I thought your <laughs> um your little introduction that you gave on Sam's channel, maybe I'll have to put some put some references to Sam's channel in this just to uh, help people know so we can um don't have to repeat some of that stuff. But so mm -hmm. so you're someone who and then you went to Bible college mm -hmm. and learned a little bit of Greek. Now that's <laughs> kind of where I want to pick up on this story because I was thinking, how am I gonna talk to this guy? I haven't read his book, he probably <laughs> doesn't know me. And as so Jonathan Peugeot is an icon carver who's been trying to um let's say expand the symbolic imagination of a a meaning crisis nihilistic world mm -hmm. and Jonathan uh and John Verveke is a cognitive scientist and and really in many ways a spiritual seeker who's been trying to put together his own system I'm a pastor who is very high in openness and for that reason is and has worked with homeless people, a, a huge variety of people and and not very um, some pastors are really intent on putting sheep in pens. I, I tend <laughs> to open range them and so that fits well on the internet. <laughs> and and some people get really annoyed by that because they really wish I would be a lot more about pe putting people in the Christian Reformed Church pen, but the Christian Reformed Church pen is having some real issues right now. So, um, mm. and I can't, I, they're, these sheep aren't going to be corralled anytime soon anyway. So I'm, I'm fine feeding them on the open range, let's say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so I wondered if we could um, get into your story at the, um, get into your story at the Bible college level mm -hmm. and talk a little bit about vocation. Because like you, actually, there was a time in my life when I was homeschooling um, my five children and I would homeschool them in the mornings and my wife would teach public school. And, and so then I would go into my office about three or four o'clock in the afternoon and I would work till, you know, pastor, you got a lot of evening meetings anyway. So the schedule didn't work too badly, but um 
you were at one point interested in the ministry. Why don't you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, so my family, as I said, mentioned with Sam, kind of basically uh, more from my dad's side and his background than my mom's. But basically our family ended up in what was called the Restoration Movement or what is called the Restoration Movement, the Stone Campbell Movement. Basically, like we want to be a New Testament church and it's low church. There's not a lot of... Um, say, uh, explicit attachment to the historical, the greater Christian tradition. It's not even mainline Protestant. Um, and so has its roots, just for the, the nerds out there, it has its roots in the Second Great Awakening. It's an American sort of um, born uh, tradition, really. Um, so so that's, uh, they have a, a set of Bible colleges. And so, you know, as one does, if you feel like you have a call to ministry, um, or if you want to study this stuff, or if you're just not sure, but it's possible you go to one of these Bible colleges. And so, in fact, to this day, I still have a, an older brother who is a professor of New Testament at one of them. And, um, and so, and my, my father's a hospice chaplain now. Uh, he was a GM factory worker for <clears throat> a long time. And then he hopped around, he, he became a minister late in life and, and then ended up now in chaplaincy. And my other brother, so I have two older brothers. One of them is a pastor at a pretty sizable church in this tradition. Um, and then the other one is a professor in a, in, at the Bible college that I attended in that same tradition. So pretty embedded, um, whereas I'm a, just full disclosure, I'm a I'm a Catholic. Uh, a con I, I became Catholic about eight years ago. My wife was raised Catholic, but her family left the Catholic church. And, then, uh, and so we returned, or she returned, I suppose, and I became Catholic uh, about eight years ago. So, um, and we can get to that later because, of course, that introduces some complications in a vocation, uh, but of a married of a married man. So, so I, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I went to this Bible college because I thought I wanted to study the Bible. I was one of those high school students who was <laughs> was really into apologetics. I wanted to prove my faith. I wanted to know what was true. I wanted to tell all my peers that you know, there is objective truth and we don't have to guess at this. So I'm like, I remember reading uh, to William Lane Craig and uh, J.P. Moreland, these sort of well-known apologists, especially I think back in, you know, what, 20 years ago or whatever. I mean, they're still around, but um, kind of like those were the guys I knew. I read their really huge textbook called philosophical foundations for a christian worldview i was reading that in the middle of english classes my teacher was trying to talk about shakespeare did you go so to public I, school i did okay yep k through 12 public school yeah so um so i was very into my faith so it seemed like natural that i should that it, i should take that as something like a calling or a vocation to the ministry in that tradition so i was going to go to the bible college um yeah. And so that's, that's what I did. I went there. And as I said, and with Sam, you know, yeah, there isn't, <laughs> because you're not really explicitly identifying with some like mainline tradition or the Catholic or the Orthodox or anything like that. There's a huge emphasis on just the text of scripture itself. Yep. So like one of the things you, you know, you do, and uh, every freshman did, I, I think they changed it now, but it's, you know, you take a year long course on just the book of Acts in the new testament because this is a picture of the new testament church and so and of all books in the new testament that's the one <laughs> yeah exactly right <laughs> and then you and then you later learn about you know 
restoring the New Testament church seems a little bit problematic because let's read First Corinthians, you know, <laughs> what's going on there? <laughs> um, you know, which church and you know which uh, you know which controversy do you want to rehash because there's a lot there already at, right at the beginning. Um, you know, some follow, some follow Paul, others Silas, you know, uh, but so that's, but that, I mean, that whole thing, a huge part of, you know, that, that struggle within modernity of, okay, how can we, in a sense, recapture the, the living essence of the faith? And because you look at yeah. Christian reformed church materials, um, you know, 19th, early 20th century, middle of the 20th century. I mean, I have books from the Christian from church here that, you know, you basically open it and it's Old Testament, Jesus, Acts, yes. Martin Luther, you know, right. <laughs> boom, boom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, we, we, I think, I don't even remember how many hours I was asked at college for four or five years. I think I took one course on church history and, you know, like one semester, one course, the whole of church history and yeah, it was pretty much that sort of pattern. It was like, you got the New Testament, you got the year 100, but really even, we didn't even look at the second century. I mean, you just jump to, you sort of do the Reformation, but because again, we're not mainline, it would be like, well, Martin Luther was right, Zwingli, Calvin were right to resist, you know, the, the Roman Catholic sort of hegemony, but um, they still kind of retained quite a bit of the uh, the accretions that had oh. gathered over time. So, you know, you need to go even more radical, which is which is interesting because in the tradition I was raised, actually, like early on, um, there was a, a radical like pacifist bent, for example. Um, some of the main some of the big like Lipscomb, there's, a, there's actually a school named after David Lipscomb. He was a part of this tradition. He was like anti he, they didn't even want um, their parishioners to fight in the Civil War no matter what side they were on, even though a lot of them were on the South. So actually, I think if I, if I remember right, the Stone Campbell tradition had the most, I don't know how, exactly how well or how accurate, how they can know this, but what I was taught at least in this course was there were, they had the most uh, sort of the greatest, um, you know, ratio of people who, abs uh, uh, who, who chose not to fight into or fight in the civil war um, because of religious conviction. So anyway, there's but but then of course where we were, you know, by the time I'm in Bible college in the early 2000s, it's definitely not that anymore. And there's there's a pretty there's a pretty pro-American uh, patriotic thing that kind of pushes against that earlier strand. So anyway, so there's this yeah, there's that impulse like you said to find the vitality. There's a presumption that the closer you get to the source, the more true or genuine it is. There's a kind of problem, and I think it's a perennial problem in a lot of different spheres and traditions and outlooks, that it's a it's hard to see how the truth can live. That's that's I kind of think what it boils down to. It's hard to see how the truth can live. How can the truth exist and endure through time, through action, through events, through decisions, through major watersheds and et cetera, et cetera, and not be fundamentally changed or transformed? So an anxiety sort of forms around that. Um, and so we need right, to go so back. It's, it's hard to see how the truth can stay. Let's yes, yes. To be living and active and yet, in a sense, never changing. Right, right. right. So, uh, so which, of course, Christianity puts first, you know, front and center because you have the truth talking <laughs> and saying, I am the way, the truth, and life. And then, you know, being born and living and dying. And so, so you can't avoid that. That's a dynamism that's put right in front of our faces. 
Um, so anyway, but this, so this particular tradition, yeah, that was its version. Anyway, so I, that, that's what I was raised in. That was the Bible college. I, you know, obviously I've left a lot of what I was brought up in. However, I am grateful for even just, just the kind of drilling on the text. Like what is, what is in the Bible? What is the biblical, what is in the biblical text, the languages and stuff. There's there, that all was very useful to this day. I still pull on that, uh, knowing the text inside and out. I mean, I had a, I had a gospel, a whole class, one semester dedicated to the gospel of Matthew. The final was four hours long. It was a four hour long final wow. written, written. <laughs> and so you're doing, you're doing like 200 in what chapters, you know, like you're just going to get a statement of verse, but it's not going to be labeled the chapter and the verse. And you're going to have to tell me what chapters is from in the book of Matthew. And, you know, in Greek or English. <laughs> so in English for everyone. Okay. There were other options if you wanted to get a little. I, I once had to go to the dean, or I went to the dean's office, recited the whole Sermon on the Mount from memory, uh, you know, as a sort of part of my some part of this program. So, you know, so there's a great emphasis on the text, which is very useful and good. It's just that I wanted more. But while I was there, yeah, I was I was already sort of answering the call, the vocation. I preached at a rural Missouri church of about 30 to 40 people for two years. Every week I had to drive about an hour and a half one way, go out there, spend the spend the weekend with them. I got to know them. I love them. Most of them were dairy farmers, beautiful farms, um, really good people. <laughs> one one of my one of the people in my the church I was at had um he had never seen the ocean. He was like 70. You know, he's just like, I never, never took a day off. And then he pointed to his, uh, his tractor, which was air conditioned. And he said, that's my vacation. <laughs> I just sit in there and I, I'm in another world. Great, great people really taught me a lot. I mean, and they're super generous. I mean, th imagine that I'm a, I'm a 20, 20, 21 year old kid. And I'm coming there and I'm preaching 45 minute sermons on the book of judges. I mean, that's horrible. <laughs> I mean, that's horrible. <laughs> and they're sitting it and they're sitting there and taking it. Oh, they are taking it. And I'm like bumbling around. And yeah, it was the first sermon I ever preached to just ask for like a fill, you know, somebody to fill in. And I go out there, I don't know anybody. I gave them a 45 or 50 minute sermon on like the life of Samson or something. Wow. Yeah, just terrible. And yet they invited And the me message back. was. Be careful of uh, strange women, right. or hot women. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah, <laughs> as I'm saying it to the 65 year old dairy farmer, like he's like, "What?" I mean, okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it was it was such a unique time. It was a wonderful time. I love those people. But yeah, as I was there, as I was preaching, I was doing some other sorts of ministry, and then I was studying at the Bible College. I just started having some of my own personal questions arise about these things. And I was asking professors and, you know, I think it's stuff that's probably predictable and probably lots of people thought about it. I mean, I've come to see this is not even, not only is it predictable in the sense that it's common today, but a lot of the questions I was asking were already asked and sometimes at great length addressed in church history, the history I didn't know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that was a at once a, a great source of comfort for me. So, for example, just to throw throw out a sort of obviously controversial one, you might say, you know, uh, times God uh, commands genocide in the Old Testament about five times, um, you know, and I, I just had, I, don't, I had questions. I was like, well, hold on a second, you know, um, 
you know, did this actually happen uh, the way it said? How do we square this with the revelation of God in Jesus Christ who dies for his enemies rather than uh, sends an army to slaughter their children and all their livestock and trees and everything else? Um, is this something, you know, and then lo and behold, you know, you learn, hey, you know, already in the second century, this, this was kind of one of the first big things. Marcion comes along and he has the same questions and Actually, the answers he receives from, you know, what we now call the church fathers were were pretty different than even what I was hearing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that that was intrigued. It was it was it was a source of comfort for me to realize I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. So this kind of ties, I think, to the TLC, right? The whole sort of ethos here. Yep. I'm not alone in asking these questions. Number one. Christians themselves have asked them, number two, therefore, number three, it doesn't, it's not a sign of my rebellious spirit mm -hmm. to just want openly to ask about and, and to address the questions. But then, then I think the number four element there is that, well, hold on a second. If I am finding comfort in the fact that these discussions have occurred in history, but it's also the very history I'm sort of ignorant of and I'm, and I'm not really being taught. And then it makes you question like, what exactly are we doing here and how are we related to Christians of the past ages? And so that led me into a kind of a, another part or phase of my story, which would be kind of coming into more explicitly, you know, uh, the, what you want to call perhaps the, the greater Christian tradition. And, and so, uh, which for me ended up looking like Catholicism, but there are other options and stuff. So that, yeah. well, let's, let's, let's play around in this a little bit more because in my experience, again, I mean, where, I mean, Sam, Sam works in IT. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm still not entirely sure how Nate makes a living, but I know it's a job <laughs> that he can listen to videos while he does it. Well, and a yeah. lot of my channel is actually sort of in that. Um, did you graduate from Bible college? Yeah, I got a um, bachelor's of theology is what they called it. It was more like a bachelor's in New Testament. Okay. Um, What'd you do yeah. after that? So after that, I went to, because I had explicitly these questions about how to interpret the Bible and especially the Old Testament, I decided to do a master's degree in historical theology at St. Louis University. So sort of back close to home. My family's from St. Louis. Um, but I explicitly wanted to, to um, study a guy named Origin of Alexandria. So, and I wanted, and my question was, as I said with Sam this morning, it really was just simply this. How, why did Origin think he could read the Bible the way he did. <laughs> you know, I, don't don't give me this like he was just a Greek and Greeks just sort of do that. And, you know, they've done that with Homer and their poems and all that. OK, maybe that that's possible. But I want to know, did he have anything to say that, that I would consider a Christian reason to read the Bible, however you want to call it, there's many names, figuratively, spiritually, allegorically. Why did he, why does he, why did he seem so free? Why did, hmm. why did, why does he seem to be so kind of free to explore the Bible? Many layers, many meanings, not looking for what I was taught, which is the author's intended meaning is the meaning. That's the, that's God's meaning through the text. That is the inspired message that you are to understand that's why you study it historically, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and clearly Origen did care about the history or the the, the literal letter, letter because he learned Hebrew. He was looking at different manuscripts. I mean, he wanted to know the text. He wanted to know what was written, but obviously he also felt free to go well beyond that. 
And so I was just, that was my simple question. I wasn't trying to do anything innovative or new or interesting. I was, it was really a personal existential question. Why did he think he could do that? Because apparently he was very influential on lots of other people throughout the rest of you know, church history that I didn't know about. So I wanted to know that. I went and wrote a thesis on him. Um, it became, I whittled it down to some, I don't know, 20, 30 pages came the first article I published, um, was on him is, and, and his understanding of, uh, scripture and his, really his Christological justification for reading scripture that, uh, the way he did. And I tried to condense it down. So that's what I did there. After that, I don't know if you want me to keep going or not. Well, let, well let's talk about, <laughs> I mean, cause you said it in an interesting way. I think people are going to have questions about it his Christological justification for reading scripture the way he did expand mm -hmm. that a little bit more because, and you know, cause if you listen to Nate, Nate, you know, lately, if you will, if you listen to Nate late, not long enough, you notice that Nate, like all of us has, you know, you get certain enamored by a thing for a little while and then another thing. And right now, you know, Christology is, is sort of Nate's uh, happy space right now. So, yeah. <laughs> but I think a lot of people would, and this sort of, you know, piggybacks on your conversation with Sam, a lot of people would say something like, well, Christology is this, it's it's one of these doctrines, it's one of these creedal positions that, that you know, if you grow up within a tradition, you had better salute for. Otherwise, you might be a, a cautionary tale like Sam, who, um, you know, gets himself into all these all this trouble at different <laughs> evangelical churches. Mm -hmm. um, but, but when you say, you know, a Christological justification for reading a certain way. Now, I, I thought Christology was a was a creed that I salute to. And now you're saying Christology. Yeah, I don't know if you know who Peter Enns is. Peter Enns. I do. Yeah. Oh, oh do you know him personally? No. Oh, not okay. personally. So, so Peter Enns went to, he was a scholar, he was an Old Testament scholar at Westminster Theological Seminary, which is a conservative seminary um, in Philadelphia. And he wrote what I thought was a, you know, a book I really enjoyed on basically comparing um, Christ as word of God and the Bible as word of God. And he kind of ran afoul of his tradition there. And so he's been, he's been out doing other things, which um, so, so flesh that out because I think for a lot of people, okay, Christology, well, okay, that's, that's just a creed or Jesus, that's a guy. And now you're saying that all of this somehow gets into some sort of hermeneutical or a way that we interpret, because it very much sounds like it's those kinds of issues that in Bible college, you begin to read this and you're starting to think, yeah. hey, wait a minute, um, this sort of like little theological hopscotch, which is sort of how we get from Acts to the church down the road, they kind of jumped a few steps in there. <laughs> right, right. No, that's good. So. So I think I think there's basically two kind of lines of approach that uh, that I would take uh, on this. One is, and and again, these are very biographical, but I I do think too they they make sense when you reflect on them, uh, like say from an early church perspective. One would be this, and I'd state it this way, and then I'll unpack it. What was interesting to me was that if even right even for a restorationist background like me it doesn't matter the apostles are important i mean <laughs> you know uh paul is important uh the gospel writer is important the new testament is important. this is inspired scripture this is the word of god written and delivered for you know for us for our salvation even and um and so you want to imitate them 
And of course, Paul bids us to do that explicitly, um, you know, in a kind of amazing, in the kind of way Paul can seem actually humble, even though he's extremely brash and sometimes almost like, almost his self-confidence is really, really, uh, let's say, um, uh, impressive. Um, and uh, and yet you, the sincerity is also there. And so he bids us to follow him, imitate me as I imitate the Lord. Okay. All right. So what does that mean? Well, it means love your neighbor. It means um, it means the fruits of the spirit from Galatians five. It means you know be gentle, kind, patient, right? It means the stuff that uh, that he, the beautiful sort of moving um, you know him as it were to love that he has in First Corinthians thirteen that we all read at weddings, um, you know, um, great stuff. Okay, well, does it mean you read the Bible like he did? Well. No. Well, what about in 1 Corinthians 10 when he says the rock, right, that Moses struck in the desert was Christ? He doesn't say that the rock was sort of like Christ. He doesn't say it was a symbol or a, or a picture. You could use a metaphor for Christ. He just says it's Christ. Uh, or like the way he handled, he quotes, I, I, I should have looked this up because I, I was just talking about this with somebody else the other day, but I think he said the numbers are Deuteronomy. He, he quotes a, a verse in 1 Corinthians 5, which is clearly in the context of, of the Old Testament passage, basically a kind of punishment, a capital punishment thing. Like, look, if this person's doing X, put them to death, put them outside, right, the, the, the community, which is clearly meaning there, kill them. Well, he quotes it for the, you know, for the man who's sleeping with his mother-in-law. and But clearly he doesn't mean kill them because he says hand them over to Satan so that we might receive him back. But as it is written, and he quotes that verse. Okay, well, hold on a second. So you start- and especially if you read those quotes in Paul, and then you start, well, why are those words different, even in my King yes. James? <laughs> yes, exactly, right, right. You know, and, and at this time, too, I'm like, I'm hearing about certain, so certain, the, the scholarly side of here stuff from like, like the work of Richard Hayes is doing echoes of scripture, you know, and all these illusions. My brother, he's, he did his PhD uh, on the book of Revelation. And so he was very much, you know, 542 illusions to the Old Testament. Oh, yeah. Revelation. That'll really yeah. put you in there. <laughs> right. And so you're like, okay, so, so you, yeah, you start doing that. You start saying, okay, well, hold on. He's, he's citing this, you know, we, we could, and this isn't even, I'm not even talking about the messianic prophecy passages, like that the gospel of Matthew will cite for, you know, like, like Isaiah seven or something like that. Um, it's just, so anyway, you start to notice at the very least, hold on, the way they're reading and handling scripture really isn't what you would call a historical critical way of handling these texts. Um, and sometimes, you know, by our, by those standards that, that are sort of in academic biblical studies today, they might even be called sort of dishonest or whatever. And, and I, anyway, just the point is it's very different. Let's just say that. And, and so I was, and I was at a conservative institution. I mean, they, they were not the historical critical, you know, liberals always citing 19th century Germans or whatever. They, they, they were, they were evangelical ish, um, but they weren't even explicit, you know, so it was very much like, you know, inerrantist uh, Chicago statement and inerrancy. It's, it's literally true, like almost plenary inspiration. So anyway, I'm just saying they were very. And so when you ask these questions, what's interesting and this will lead to the first sort of response that I have to that question. Well, they're apostles. Yeah, yeah, they get to do that. <laughs> they get to do that. 
And one thing I noticed immediately when studying Origen and some of the early church, the way they handled scripture was they thought exactly the opposite, but from the same premise. They would say, exactly, they're apostles, so we should imitate them. It's exactly the inverse. And, and, and I was confused because I was like, well, hold on, I'm supposed to imitate Paul. I'm supposed to follow the example of these great heroes of the faith. I look at Hebrews 11, right? I, I'm supposed to imitate. Imitation is very important in Christianity. Imitation of Christ, but through imitating members of his body, etc. But then all of a sudden, when it comes to not the moral life and what you do in your day to day and how you treat people or what you say you believe or confess, but actually how you handle scripture now, all of a sudden they're just totally exceptional. You shouldn't follow them. You shouldn't do what they do and read the way they read uh, because, and, and yet it's the same justification, because they're apostles, they've got special insight. They can do that kind of thing, <laughs> but you can't. <laughs> now, I get what's funding that. I get what sort of, I get the anxiety behind that because, and Origen himself is already dealing with this in his own life. You can even read some of his sermons and he's, he's it's almost sometimes like he's responding in person to actual objections being raised while he's preaching in the church, which is really interesting. Um, he does it, for example, in the first uh, homily on Leviticus. He says, now some will say, here I am just playing with the clouds of allegory. And I know that you, you must think this, this, is, and then he, he makes this sort of move that I'll come back to in a second, where he says, where he basically likens the inspired text. He says, just as the word became flesh, the word becomes page and letters. And so we must approach him appropriately in this text. Okay, so that's a deeper, deeper part. But let's just say the first point, the first line here is really just looking at the way the New Testament itself, and there are various ways, and of course, Matthew handles scripture differently than Paul and John and so on. But nevertheless, it certainly isn't. One thing they have in common is they don't, they don't seem to be constrained by what, say, the one single author's intended meaning of Isaiah or of, you know, whatever, Book of Jonah. Or, so so I, I was puzzled by that, and I started to learn that the early church thought exactly the opposite. We should follow in the footsteps of Paul, and then, of course, not to mention Jesus himself, who says in, like, Luke chapter 24, you know, he's a risen Christ, he's on the Emmaus Road, and he says, you know, basically, he, he, it, it, he went through and showed them all that all of these scriptures were about him, and specifically his sufferings crucifixion right so so in some ways and i think what the early church fathers began to articulate more and more clearly even though they had, they didn't always agree with each other on and everything um but at least they to agreed put it, to put it mildly yeah to put it mildly <laughs> i just finished <laughs> and, watching you and sam talk about you right. know cutting out the tongue and cutting off the hand yeah, yeah. a little bit of a conflict there <laughs> yes yeah, sometimes it got ugly for sure but but the very at the very least, you can read somebody like Augustine in in on Christian teaching, or who is considered a little more restrained in these matters, or you can or you can read someone like Origen, who's much more open to various interpretations and meanings. But both of them would essentially agree in principle that unless the Scripture gets to being about the Word made flesh, the incarnate Word Jesus Christ, it's not yet fully there. It hasn't fully delivered its message because its message is the person of Christ. And so and so that's and so when you see Paul saying that the rock was Christ, the rock that Moses struck was Christ, well he's just going straight there. This rock that you're reading about uh putting pouring forth water really is about Jesus. It really is Jesus. 
Well, then you could you could jump to Origins homilies on Joshua, which he preached through the book of Joshua. And he opens his very first homily and he says, in this book, I read for the first time the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Joshua writes Hebrew for Jesus. And so the rest of the, you know, and again, whether or not people agree with it, it's just, it's illustrative. Because what he says is he ends up interpreting the all of the wars of Canaan. As wars against, as he says, the war of the lamb. And and, and who does the war, uh, the lamb wage war against? And, and against what? Well, is it not against, say, the works of the flesh? Which is really brilliant because, <laughs> you know, one of which is wrath. And so a book that can be read and has been read variously as sort of inciting or at least justifying a, a kind of holy rage even to the point of going to war on behalf of like the light now in origins hands becomes a war, a, a, a book about going to war against the very rage that incites you to go to war. It's really, really different. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, and some people would have, would have problems with that, but nevertheless, it's just sort of illustrative. So I'm, so I'm looking at this, I'm saying, okay, now, so that's the other point, right? They're not simply just reproducing what Paul said. Uh, and not just simply following, there's a sort of development. There's a sort of kind of, well, we need to imitate, but ne no imitation is the exact same as what's imitated. And so that's that's one way that Origen and I think like Clement of Alexandria and other uh, church fathers, that's how that's one way they kind of justified it. It's like, look, we're following in the footsteps of the apostles. And then the deeper, the other, the second thing I would say and it's kind of what my article be, ended up being more about. My thesis was more about was I, what, it, what we might call a kind of deeper Christological. So right now I say I've said Christological, uh, but really all that's meant at this point is that Jesus is the, as it were, aim or object of Scripture, and Jesus Himself sort of exemplifies that in some some place like you know Luke chapter twenty four, where He seems to say all the Scripture is about Me, really. Uh, but another, and and perhaps a deeper Christological justification, gets to the very structure, or dynamism, or or um, character, if you will, of what it means to say that a text written by human hands, many human hands over many different times, and sometimes even different languages, uh, what it means to say that that text is inspired. Which, which I do think most Christians need to say or do say. Well, it, at least those who know something say it. I mean, it's. I mean, a lot of people will just simply say, "written by God," and that's their level of resolution that they right. sort of operate with. Yes, and so when you when you're looking at some of these early church fathers, what you start to notice, and again, especially with Origen, he's the one I started at. He's the kind of he is the origin, I guess. Um, is well it doesn't just mean inspiration in a kind of colloquial sense or in a common sense way that you might say well you know I, I heard the song it really inspired me to do this or i heard a sermon even and it inspired me to you know uh be a little more active in ministry or whatever it means pretty pretty literally that the divinity god himself is present in the text and therefore that text is a self-revelation it's not just like some idea about God. It's not just like smart people sat down and really had great uh, thoughts and and uh, teachings about God. 
like rumors, as it were, of what the the, the man upstairs is like. Uh, it's 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 that just as the incarnation, the Word made flesh, who is himself actually the Word of God. If 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 you know, even Karl Barth would say that, right? First and foremost, he is the Word of God. The Word of God is a he, not not just a text. Um, and the text bears witness to that word, etc. That's one way to run it as well. But that the word of God, what we learn from that, if we learn anything, one of the things we learn is that God wishes to reveal himself in person. And so the revelation of God isn't just a bright light bulb going off in someone's head. It's not someone's theory. It's not uh, a system that I thought up. It's not, um, um, but it's also not just a set of propositions that you gotta you gotta sign at the at the bottom. It is the person. It is God. God wants to reveal Himself Himself. And so, if then let's let's then jump to the Bible. Then let's connect this to the Bible and say now, if the Bible, if the written text there that we you know we'll skip over the discussion about canon all that. Let's just say these texts we agree on for now are the revelation of God as well of that same word who revealed himself by becoming in person one of us, well then, in origin, it makes that explicit explicit identification or at least parallel or connection. He says, the word who made who, who became flesh may, becomes page. And of course, somebody like St. Maximus the Confessor later will will say that very, very often and pretty explicitly hmm. that the that the word incarnates in the letters and in the words and the and, and he does in the in the world and in creation and so forth. And but so the, the point of all that is just to say um what it now what it means to say that these texts are inspired, the inspired word of God written for us. It, it's it's at the very least a little more complicated now. And and it's more complicated because if the one for for two reasons if the one who is revealed as god that one is infinite if you think god is infinite which means you never finish learning which means god never finishes revealing himself one that's that's number one so that's a kind of justification right if we are going to say well the inspired meaning significance what is signified or revealed or manifested you might even just say the glory of god shining through if that is confined to a single therefore finite meaning one meaning nothing more um that isn't infinite and if that's not infinite now i wonder what it means to even say god is revealed through it is god not infinite so there's a sort of theological justification but the second point is that if it's God's self-revelation, then there is some sense in which, and yes, I know it's vague here, but there's some sense in which God himself has to take on the written words as he took on flesh. And Origen will make this note. Now, that doesn't mean it's all clear now and obvious and everything is, in fact, were there not people that met Jesus in the flesh and didn't know him? misunderstood him misinterpreted him and sometimes his own friends maybe even foremost his own friends almost if not all at all. any given time <laughs> yeah i mean i mean i'm preaching on the i'm preaching on the um it's the it's the um transfiguration sunday so there's there that you, you know yes. okay you're shining 
what does that mean? So, <laughs> right. You guys, you dive, I, that was a fascinating conversation with with uh, with Sam and um, and Nate and John. Anyway, keep going. Keep no, going. it was great. Yeah, and I saw that video. It was really good. I, I really liked your your commentary on it. it. Was very helpful. I think just even for me to understand what was happening. But um, yeah. So so th- so so now now we've really complicated the idea of an inspired word of God, uh, texts that are inspired. One, because what's revealed needs to be infinite, or else it really isn't sensible to say what's revealed is God. The other, because God, through the incarnation, sort of the structure of God's self-revelation is incarnation. And it's because God doesn't just send emissaries. He doesn't just send you, like, love letters <laughs> from a far-off place, a distant galaxy far, far away. <laughs> he he doesn't just send you bits of information. And let me tell you something about one thing I did one time someplace that you weren't alive. He, he wants to give himself. It's himself that he wants to give you. And so if that's true in the incarnation, if, in fact, we're kind of getting at the heart of the incarnation at that point, then if we're going to say that the, that the Bible also is the self-revelation of God through written text or something. It needs to have something like that incarnational movement to say, well, no, it's the, and and if you read, for example, Origins commentary in the Song of Songs, it's actually really stirring and kind of, kind of beautiful the way he'll, he'll even, he'll sometimes reflect on his own engagement with scripture. And he compares the beloved in that song to Christ himself. And he says, there are times whenever I, I reach out for the meaning of the scripture and I, I'm about to grasp my beloved, but he slips away from me, as it says in the song, right? So there's just like mystical aspect to this encounter in the very act of interpreting scripture. Why? Because it isn't just an act of interpreting a text that's been written by some random person somewhere. It is the conduit or the medium or the meeting place, you might say, where you will ultimately, hopefully, and, 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 and even Origin says, it doesn't last long for me. And it's actually sparse. You can't say every time I go to sit down to study the scripture, I'm going to have some kind of account. No, he's he's very clear about that. It's not like this hmm. magical. It's not magical in that way. It's not a hmm. formula. Right, right. It is an encounter. And as we know, just even from our own impersonal, interpersonal encounters, those are very unpredictable. You know, you know, John talks about flow. Um, and then you can get flow and dialogos and all this stuff and like, but you know, but these, as we all know, these things aren't set. There's no formula to this. So, so why would we expect that for, for meeting the Lord Jesus in scripture? So that's the other, that's the other kind of, um, deeper Christological justification for going beyond the text is that, that you're not after the text. You're not even after the original author's simple one meaning. You're after the person of God himself in Christ. Right. And that, as he himself said in Luke chapter 24, that's what it's all about. So that was, that's sort of the some of the lines of thought. Well, and, and to sort of bring it, because, boy, there's, I can already sense that, you know, you and I could go on for a very long time. I've gotten <laughs> till the top of the next hour. So I've still got another hour if you have the time. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But. You know, to come all the way around to sort of where we began with the um, anxiety that haunted, that has haunted Protestants, particularly Protestant churches in, um, in, in, in modernity, all the way into 19th, 20th century. I don't know if you've read much Mark Knoll. Mark Knoll is another right. um, 
I haven't read much of him. I've heard him okay. talk once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's um he's another he's another guy from our tribe. Um okay. the the CRC has has a church in in uh South Bend so that we can infiltrate um the very <laughs> Protestant, you know, citadel of uh, Roman Catholicism called Notre Dame, and we so that's that's how we snuck in planting gun Mark Knoll and some of these critters, so we can you know get our little hands in there. But this you know the you know we started out talking about the anxiety in these in these late Protestant movements that approach that approach. Now I'll say the Bible in this sense because that's the frame they're very much using, and and even the you know in modernity this is because i too was trained in the grammatical historical method and if you wonder and of course going through seminary I, this is just what you know you just sort of follow along because yeah. you're 20 years old and when you're 20 years old that's probably a good idea um <laughs> but but you know all, obviously within sort of a, a within sort of a modernist imagination that has to try to Christian Smith, who who also I believe went to um, Notre Dame, um, was a sociologist who got caught in all of this stuff. Um, re- wrote a few years ago, "The Bible Made Impossible," um, mm-hmm. where he talks about you know pervasive um, pervasive interpretive pluralism, which sort of plagues. It's interesting because it plagues all these all these descendants of Martin Luther, for whom you know the the you know. Luther grabs Erasmus's text and aha well now if we can if we can get behind Jerome and if we can get into the Greek and the Hebrew then suddenly we can in a very modernist way then somehow we can put God in a bottle right. and and that bottle will be the scripture itself and mm-hmm. so if we frame it with all of these rules to sort of hem it in and of course every um, every split off group has its slightly own secret formula for for <laughs> yeah. keeping God in that bottle. But but yeah. the same anxiety, which is to um, which is to again meet the risen Christ, mm-hmm. and that that you know I very much heard you you know origin seeking for, and this is where you know my Calvinism comes comes into play because you know it, you. The Christ Christ is a person, and um, people don't live in bottles, and right. especially not this one, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> because right. you, you're not, you're not going to have a bottle to contain this one. If you can, you, a, a, a breezy <laughs> reading through the gospel should give you that idea, right? <laughs> so, but but again, this um, this I this 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 desire to this desire to know the risen Lord. To have him visit us, to have see, I'm I'm still working on my sermon for Sunday. This is Peter. Let's put up some tabernacles. Right. Um, to have him dwell with us, and and you know, part I think of our hearts ever since ever since the garden. Part of our hearts is if we can if we can just make if we can just make our communion with him a product of our efforts then we you know then we can be god then we can be the master and god himself will be our servant mm. so um and and this is this is why i know some people listening to this are going to be you know are going to be and, and understandably concerned given 
given the number that's been done on the kinds of people that you went to preach through and sat through your 45 minute exposition of right. the gospel of, of, of the book of judges or um, in that, you know, one of these, of course, you know, part of the tradition in, in the, the time frame of American history that we talked about, you know, anti-intellectualism was born of a mistrust for, uh, people who have read more books than I have, who are basically going to one way or another separate me from my Jesus. I mean, right. I think I think there's so much beneath there. And of course, Mark Knoll in his thesis about why American evangelicalism and fundamentalism took on the shape it did was because, of course, the opportunists that ran into the American frontier to settle it um, by, you know, greatly outpaced the institutional ability to sort of track them as they went. And, and so what emerges is, well, if we don't have, if we don't have a church there to properly catechize us, a friend, a friend of mine once um, had a conversation, he was in a a local pastor's group, and there was an Orthodox, really wonderful Orthodox priest in that group. And my friend was a Christian Reformed church planter, and all the other guys were church planters in a suburban area, in a fast-growing area of Sacramento. And they were talking about evangelism, and the Orthodox priest says, well, we're not we're not ready to do evangelism yet. We haven't put up our monastery or our cathedral. <laughs> <laughs> and, and right there, Mark Knoll's thesis about Christianity on the American frontier emerges <laughs> because the evangelical church planters are bursting into suburban areas, bringing Jesus door to door like Rick Warren, while the Orthodox are, you know, waiting for the money and the masses to put up their building and to you know, create the space in which they will meet Jesus and they'll see him face to face yeah. right there on the top of his dome. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, I, I say this because, you know, part at least of what I, my little function in this little corner is to hopefully help people who haven't read as many books as you have, and not even as many books as I have to, to have an understanding and say, well, how, how, how on earth would learning about origin or I, you, you have to admit Maximus, the confessor has the best name for a church father, at least for Americans, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you almost not think he's going to step into a worldwide wrestling ring, you know, <laughs> Maximus. Yeah. It's like Maximus, to... the confessor. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we need to, we need a movie about him. Let's, let's put, let's put him in the circus. Yeah. But, but, you know, but part of, part of what I want again, as, as a pastor here is to is to help people understand and and really really enjoy a degree of communion with origin and maximus and i loved your conversation with sam because when you actually start reading these guys you'll find things that you read and say but that that you know my that wouldn't have washed in my catechism class right exactly <laughs> Exactly. But, but any, you know, and I, I had those same experiences reading the Bible, you know, getting getting my feet wet in Greek and Hebrew in seminary, you start reading along and it's like, well, that wouldn't wash in my catechism class. And that's in the Bible. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. No, exactly right. Yeah, so it's, uh, so no, I was no, going to say, so, I mean, obviously with you in this too, 
there's you you not only have your uh, i'll say it this way and correct me if i'm wrong your desire to know jesus more intimately is likely wed with your desire to um to to deal with the dissonance of these christians from a very alien time and place from us yes yeah it's um you know, one of the things Paul says in First Corinthians, and I think a little bit as well in Romans, um, that is always kind of astounding to me is that if, you know, when he's talking about the body of Christ, he says, um, and if if one suffers, all suffer with him. And if one rejoices, one, you know, it's just kind of solidarity that spreads across the body of Christ. And one of the things I learned from Origin as well was, isn't that just as true across time? And so I can't separate out both because of the two greatest commandments, love God, love your neighbor. Okay. So, and then again, in Maximus's hands, he, he's going to make a really strong point about how in Christ, that's one and the same thing because he became our brother and our neighbor just as much as he is our God. Okay. So now the same love, which looks like it has two targets is really one love with one target. It's, it's he who can be all things according to, 1 Corinthians 15, 28, and uh, Colossians 3, 11. So you can't really get to God apart from his children, apart from the members of his body, his church, and you can't really get to the, <laughs> it's also reverse. You can't get to each, we can't get to each other apart from him. <laughs> so we're all like wrapped up together and we're all sort of like, you, you know, it's me and the family or, <laughs> or nothing, you know? So, and that's not in time, you know, this is something I, I I contemplate this quite a bit. Time really has done a number on us because it, it it presents itself as totally absolute. Like you know, you're born and you die, and that's basically it. You know, and um, and it just isn't true if you believe the stuff we believe. Um, and so yes, I, I so there's two things. One is that I don't, I can't see, I can't now understand trying to really know and become become more and more known by god apart from knowing one another from conversation from dialogos not only here and now but also across the ages i simply can't believe that the holy spirit you might put it this way as well the holy spirit has just been twiddling his thumbs all this time <laughs> I, I, I could never buy that you know and i that's partly why I do struggle. I'm not saying there isn't decline and decadence and, and every age bemoans at the, the, the everything falling down. And I'm not saying there isn't some sort of potential apocalyptic. Uh, what, but but I, I simply don't think God is uh, derelict of duties. I, I don't think he just sort of is uh, caught off guard. I don't think he's like surprised. I don't think he just he's um he's dumbfounded. I don't think his tongue is tied. I don't think he's twiddling his thumbs. And so I and so I it's almost like in principle, I can't believe that that's ever been the case. No matter how bad it looks or it got and how bad we got with each other and how much we aired and etc. wandered off. So I can't really encounter anything without somehow expecting to find Christ at least present in kernel and seed there waiting to be born or to grow up. And so that kind of creates a sort of solidarity across time and space, which otherwise you might just call the body of Christ. So that, so that's one thing. The other thing is that, um, 
and I and by the way, I would I would include there. I'm not just I don't I don't limit that either to uh, you know to the visible church that I you know who who I count in or out. I mean, I I don't think that's even what again the apostles did. I don't think that's what Paul did at Athens. I don't you know. So we can. That's what's great about TLC is yeah. yeah he also different. wrote Galatians. He also wrote Galatians, right? <laughs> right. And uh, you know. I, I also have read Justin Martyr and he's, you know, yeah. very much, you know, saying that the logos <laughs> is everywhere and God's truth is, you know, every truth is all truth is God's truth. And so anyway, so I, there's that, there's that aspect of like, I basically, I think God is highly successful and I think he's highly competent, maybe even omni powerful. <laughs> um, <laughs> he might even be totally wise. He might even be infinitely good. He might even be, as Ephesians 3 says, more than you can ever ask or imagine. He can do more than that. So if that's true, then it doesn't really matter if something initially strikes me as totally bereft of truth or interest or goodness or beauty. It could just as well be that I have a log in my own eye. Right. So, so I don't want to make any sort of presumption there. And I'm very much open to, to that number one, but number two, look, it's Christ is, is he in whom all things in heaven and on earth have been rolled up, have been summed up, have been stitched together. He is himself in person, the absolute power to synthesize all seemingly opposite things. This goes back to the incarnation, of course. The greatest opposition you might think is between creator and creature, but lo and behold, the creator's born. So, so he seems to be very competent at that. <laughs> so I, <laughs> so I expect successes at every corner and I'm not roasted. Yeah. You know, I, I understand there's this horrible things, et cetera, et cetera. But um, anyway, so there's that aspect of like a very deep conviction in me about that. And, and, and so it really does eradicate fear of, of any kind, no matter how bad I think it's also getting or whatever. But then the other thing is that, um, I've never really understood, and this was true even from my Bible college days, probably what got me into some trouble. <laughs> um, I don't really get studying theology or the Bible or any of this stuff at all, with unless it's really about keeping your own faith. So, so I'm looking for the spirit, the enlivening spirit, the quickening spirit for my own faith. I'm not you might find other subordinate goals as you go. You might be able to say, oh, well, this is actually a bad argument. So-and-so is making against Christianity or against the existence of God, or actually you're just wrong about history. Okay, that's fine. But that's, but I tried that in high school, you know, as, as one does. <laughs> and uh, it, it's, it's, it's limited. It's a dead end. If that's your principal aim, it, there can be no other foundation as Paul also says than Christ. So, so, I might find these avenues and I might have these moments where I have to sort of turn to the side and, you know, deal with this or that. But, but the, but the truth is I'm only ever trying to seek understanding because I'm trying to believe in a world where it's very hard to believe. I don't know what else, I don't know why else you would do it. <laughs> so I, I believe I, I don't understand Bart Ehrman for exactly that reason. Right. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of, you know, headaches. It's a lot of you're you're getting sort of, you know, physically flaccid. I mean, you're you're getting out of shape and I mean, you just whatever. It's it's a lot of work. And so I I'm not saying there isn't I I actually do agree that there's there's ne there's a necessity to like 
deconstruction um, and to there's an element. I mean, in a sense, conversion itself is 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 at least a deconstruction. Yeah. It's always it's a death. It's a resurrection. It's, death and resurrection. I, I just you can be a Puritan. It's mortification. <laughs> right. I mean, we've had this stuff a long time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And 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 there's a legitimate you know reaction. I mean, I was raised. Uh, there were people around me that would have made it even seem like a, like an apostasy just to raise questions. So I yeah. get it as a reaction. But um, but we just need to start, uh, in my opinion here, I'm starting to like preach here. This is sort of, but that's okay. That's <laughs> <laughs> I don't in my, in my, in my humble opinion, as a stay at home father of four children, who hey, don't hey, care about anything. Is, preaching should not always be a dirty word. Uh, yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. It is in the Bible after all as well. But um, I just think it's uh, the time for like a fear filled anxiety, you know, uh, bastion building sort of protective uh, stay away from the world. There's a, there's a clean break between secular and sacred. That's just, it's over. Uh, there's a Catholic theologian. One of my favorite books he wrote, his name is Hans Ruth von Balthasar. He wrote a little book called raising the bastions, raising R A Z I N G like knocking down, destroying the bastions. He also wrote a sort of companion book, also a small little book, a great book called Love Alone is Credible. And I think if you, you know, those two movements are, are what I'm getting at. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not that it's not that we don't need to stand our ground. It's not that we don't need to, you know, uh, speak honestly and frankly. It's actually exactly the opposite. We need to do that. Um, it's just that perfect love casts out fear. And I just happen to think that love alone is credible and maybe not only love, but love in all of its forms. And so that's, there's really no other message that's interesting to me, at least personally. And I don't study any of this stuff for any other reason. I'm not an antiquarian. I don't just like to know facts. I don't like to know trivia. I maybe sometimes I wish I did because I could go on Jeopardy or something, but you know, but I, I don't, I, for me, it's like, it's like something always has to be at stake. So when you combine those two convictions, that's pretty much the way I approach most of all of this stuff. On the one hand, if what we say about Christ as the synthesis, the recapitulation, the total unity of all disparity is true, then I can find him anywhere, number one. So, so that does make everything worth seeking. And of course, we have to pick and choose at this point in time, but nevertheless, it's worth seeking. And then number two, um, I in the seeking, I receive. So it's, it seems like a very active thing. But really, it also is passive because I'm receiving the spirit, the vitality of the faith that I'm striving to keep alive in a time where almost every direction you look, right, left, <laughs> up, down, um, it's trying to seep away from you or being drawn away from you in one way or the other. Yeah, yeah. So, so let's get to um, let's get let's get back to the story. You get your masters. Um, when did you meet your wife? <laughs> Oh, I met her when she was 15 years old and I was 16. Oh, well, <laughs> well I'm glad you didn't say she was 15. I was 30. So yeah, that's good. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, then the interview would have to stop here. Have to... Sorry, man. Um, we're uh, we're going to have to just ditch uh, this When one. did you marry your wife? So I was 21. She was 20. Oh, so you so so you were married in Bible college. Married halfway through Bible college. I was already married. We live in a little apartment paying 400 bucks a month. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was, um, yeah. So we, so we dated for what was that? Well, including the engagement, it would be five years. 
And then we got married. We've now been married for a little over 15 years. And uh, she's a nurse. So as I say, she makes a good she's, living. She makes a good living being a, an actual Christian. Whereas I just sit here and think about it and don't make a living. <laughs> <laughs> no, you raise your children. That's a, that's yeah, yeah. a, that's a very uh, right. important thing. You right. just dismissed a whole bunch of women out there who are raising their children while the dude is out there working. I mean, be a little careful here. We don't have standards. Yeah. Well, I suppose me, I, I suppose I didn't really want to think of it as making a living as much as making a survival. I'm trusting that. Yeah, when yeah, it comes yeah. to their little monsters, now I love them. But um, what what, yeah, what, the, what what what's the oldest and your youngest kid? So I've got an eight year old daughter. It's it's eight, six, three, and one and a half. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now there's nine years. At one point, when my youngest was born, of youngest of five, the oldest was nine. So, um, and it was it was nine, six, four, two. Nine, six, so it was wow. like there's a there's there's three and a half years between the oldest and the second one, and that's pretty much every two years, and it, it just got shorter and shorter. So, <laughs> at five, I said, you know, honey. Hmm. Um, you might want to think about this a little bit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, yeah, I, I think we're we're done. But we we had a miscarriage in between two of them, so we mm. probably would have hit that five mark. But yeah, it, so we have four here living with us, and yeah, so that's definitely keeps me active. But we have been married for fifteen years, so we, yeah, I was married. We were already married in Bible college. She couldn't even drink at her own wedding. <laughs> there was no alcohol served at my wedding. Okay. <laughs> Somebody would have to sneak it in themselves. Right. Um, my my wife, um, my my wife's mother, her father was a Lutheran minister who was actually they were missionary her father and mother were missionaries in Africa. She was adopted and they brought her to Africa. And um, but then they left when she was six, and her father was a Lutheran pastor. And her mother was a, um, a fundamentalist Baptist, and her father was killed in a car accident. So she, she went to morning church with the Lutherans and evening church with the Baptists. So, um, <laughs> but we won't we won't go through my wife's story here. <laughs> but um, but her but her mother's sisters did the reception. I mean, we got if if we had had our, our way, we probably would have been married for less than five hundred bucks. But my mother in law insisted on a few things like a cake, so it pushed it up over a thousand. Oh um, yeah, no, we have we were we had all of our friends do everything because we were trying to make it as cheap as possible. And one of the effects of that was that our photographer, who just happened to buy a nice camera, but he actually didn't know how to use it, and I didn't know that. <laughs> we don't even have a single picture of us together <laughs> from, our, <laughs> from our wedding. He didn't think uh, to do that. Oh, <laughs> uh, and it's and the pictures they're they're horrible. I mean, they're uh, so. Uh, <laughs> so so okay so you get your you write your um you get this you get this master's then you go on you get a phd or have you just um so we spent so we actually leave and we your spend, wife is very generous with you it's like honey i'm geez. gonna get more degrees okay oh yeah. oh yeah and actually so while i was doing a um a master's at st louis university we lived in like in a christian intentional community in the north side of the city uh, and I, I went to an African-American Church of Christ. There's our whole community went there and we lived in a predominantly black neighborhood. It was north of the, what they call the Del Mar Divide. It's a very racially divided area. And we were the north side. And, and so we did a lot of work with like tutoring programs and stuff. And um, we were doing that while I was doing my master's degree. So when we when I finished the master's degree, though, my wife had been working full time. So she was making money in 
And, um, and so we were saving it up. So we decided actually we still didn't have kids at that point. We decided to go spend a year in France. Oh, so we did one year in France. We did a language school for 10, 10 months or so. And, uh, that was a compromise because I wanted to go to Germany and do German and she had no interest. <laughs> she had double majored in nursing and Spanish. So she wanted to go somewhere Spanish speaking. And I had bad experience of that in high school. So I said, no, I don't want to do that. So I was like, well, how about this? Another romance language. Let's go to France. <laughs> okay, let's go. So that's what we did. They didn't know what to do with us. It was funny. We were in these, like, we were like on a campus staying in sort of dorms, but they're privatized. It's sort of strange, but um, they didn't even have a room. F- like we had two separate rooms. <laughs> Like they didn't know what to do with a married couple <laughs> this young. Oh, and so we had yeah, to like, yeah. <laughs> we had to make that work. But anyway, uh, so we spent a year in France and that's kind of where we started. We started going to mass. We went to some Latin masses. We went to French. We went, we had a two, uh, two seminarian friends from India and we started going to their seminary and mass. And so I think there's where it kind of became apparent that probably uh, I was going to have to make a move. She was raised Catholic. So for her, it was sort of familiar um but i was going to make a move one way or the other and then the year after that is when we moved to boston and i did started my phd program at boston college and oh okay yeah. uh peter kreeft i never took a class with him i saw him in the hallway a few times oh, so. oh well <laughs> he he another dutch reformed guy um <laughs> went to the same high school i did went to the same college wow. i did broke wow. the hearts of the philosophy department when he went over with the Roman Catholics. <laughs> yeah. 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 And that's the thing. He was in the philosophy department. So I didn't take a whole lot of courses over there. I was in the theology, but yeah. So, um, so was yeah. this, is this Maximus book, the first book you've published or yep. how did this come about? Yeah, it was the first one. It's, it's uh, basically a revision and I expanded parts of it uh, from my dissertation. Okay. Um, yeah. So besides taking care of your kids, what what are you thinking about? Um, are you going to keep writing books or? Probably I've got a few contracts to do do some books that so I probably should make good on that. But uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm you actually... can't explain to a toddler, honey, <laughs> daddy's got to write a book now. It's like they don't respect me. I don't know. Uh, but uh, so, yeah, I'm because, you know, I taught I taught at a college level for a few years. I really liked it. I taught at a high school for a year. I liked it. It was an all girls high school. Um, and it was it was in St. Louis in the city. And Catholic it was high school. Yeah. All girls Catholic high school. It was it was actually a good year. I really liked the students. It didn't make sense for us financially, though, after that year, yeah. our fourth was on the way. So that's when I transitioned and I've now been a stay-at-home dad for a year and a half. And I basically work on, because my wife's a nurse, she can get all of her hours in three days a week. So I have like a day or so a week where I kind of just do my own thing. Okay. Uh, And so- That must be today. It's today. Yes. (laughs) You can tell, right? You can tell. Because you're not, I mean, I could, any minute now I'm going to be interrupted by a homeless person. So- Yeah, well, I got this little thing here just so you don't, it can't, you know, look somewhat, I don't know what, like, but um, yeah, so I, I don't know, I kind of, I'm on a team, I'm, you get roped into these things, it's interesting, so I'm, I'm on a team of, uh, like, translating this philosopher called Schelling, Friedrich Wilhelm Joseph von Schelling, <laughs> Schelling, he's a 19th century German idealist philosopher, I've, I've, I've heard the name, uh, contemporary of, uh, of, of Goethe, Hegel. Or Hegel? Goethe. 
Both of them. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. I've, I've heard a little bit about them. Interestingly, Schelling, Hegel, and the famous poet Holderlin, uh, they, those three went to Tübingen. They went to seminary together. And for like one semester, they were actually all three in the same room together and they were friends. And so uh, none of them ended up becoming a minister, but that's that's where they started. And uh, I've seen actually the Stift, the seminary that they they went um, that they went to. So you snuck over to Germany a few times. I did. I actually did. I did spend a month there also doing language stuff and (laughs) (laughs) stood at the gate and gazed at it. But and then looked at Hulderland's tower where where he went insane and um, yeah, and ended his days there. But um, so so, yeah, I'm like, we got a grant. We got a grant. I'm working with a professor at uh, Notre Dame and like a friend of mine. It was it was actually our idea. Like back when we were writing a dissertation, we just had this idea to do this. And anyway, it snowballed into this big thing. So we got a an NEH grant, what it's called. So like you get a little bit of money. It's essentially like part-time work from home. So I do little projects like like that. And what does my future hold? I have absolutely no idea. No idea. You could, you could, you could, you're a good talker. You could make you you so I'll I'll tell you something. So for years I blogged. I, I'm very ADHD. So I remember one of my one of my professors at seminary was too, and he always looked at, he'd said, you know, I, I, I should sit down and write something long, but I just can't do it. <laughs> and, um, and I, you know, I, I was always writing and I was interested in stuff. And then I'd have some denominational people like, well, you know, let, write a book, write a book, we'll publish it, yada, yada. And I watched some, some of my colleagues write books and, and I thought, I saw how much they poured into these books. And then I thought, you know, if I wrote a book, my mother would buy one. I don't know if she'd read the whole thing. And and my, some of the people in my church would buy it. I know they wouldn't read the whole thing, if any of it. So then I just said, I said I'm not sure that that's worth my, although I'm going to buy your book just to thank you for doing this and because this has been such a great conversation. So oh, it's a little well, donation for the kids. Yeah, um, well, it'll go straight to the press, but. <laughs> that's, that's okay. um, but then, but then I, you know, then I, you know, quite by accident started making YouTubes. And for me, if, if, you know, my mission is, my mission is not to be a big YouTuber there. If you want to be a big YouTuber, don't do what I've done um, because it's not the formula and I'm quite happy it isn't, but, um, but there are, but what this was, was in fact a way that I could actually engage an audience um far beyond what book writing probably would have ever brought me and now in fact if i ever do any book writing probably more people will read it not only because more people know me but because i probably have a better sense now of what's helpful for people right so right but but you're more you're more of an academic and i'm not I'm a pastor. I'm not really an academic. So (laughs) yeah, that's the kind of, right. That's the sort of like the the divide. And so we'll see. And like, yeah, the book, the book that I've published is very much, I'm actually to be, to be very frank, I'm very surprised that it's even gotten the attention that it has. It is a, it is a, as an academic book, like I, I can't, I can't spin it in any other way. I mean, it is, you're going to see technical language. You're going to see, greek and other languages and just i don't know i wasn't really writing it with in my in my mind i was like you know and i had to modify some of it for the book so it isn't it's not like you have to be able to speak all these different languages or something to read it you don't but 
but it is it's like that's not the kind of book i would write if i was trying to write for a broader audience yeah, yeah. I, I have a contract to write a book for a broader audience so i'm gonna have to really not not do that but um but i don't know i don't know you know i don't have like um like i said before i mean it ties into what i said before i really do i do this stuff to keep my faith alive no, no. Well, that that's exactly why I make videos. Exactly. We all, right. And we all have different right outlets for that and ways yeah. of pursuing that. It's just yeah. the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. No, but you do, you can talk to people and, um, you know, I could hear that in this conversation. So if you, you know, if you, if you decide you want a little something, because you'll, the truth is you'll probably do a little bit better for your family on social media, but yeah. you've got to figure out, um, exactly how to how to make how to make this stuff go so um good we're we've at we're at an hour and a half i don't know if there's anything you wanted to ask me or wanted to talk about or something that you wanted to get off your chest just to save your soul <laughs> well there, that would take way too long but, uh, there's no way we would have time for that you know? it's uh it's a it's a gospel of john chapter 21 thing there would be there's not enough books in the world for that yeah. kind of thing but, well but but that whole i mean your point too about because part of why you know, part of why I this my whole involvement on YouTube had gotten going was um, there are many who are there are many who are abandoning the faith and abandoning the church for reasons that really aren't so good. Um, you know, and it, it's not like the questions aren't difficult. They are. And it's not like um, Pat answers aren't too shallow. They are. But it it isn't necessarily a reason to abandon the faith partly because what i tend to see with people who do abandon the faith and i don't just mean the ascent but also the life is that they trade out for stuff that's really not a good exchange right and um and and i you know i liked i liked where what you and sam said with respect to Christology. I, I put a comment in it. I know Sam's talking about me there because I mean, actually, I, because I am a minister in a um, in a confessional church, and I do speak very openly on YouTube. I do have to be a bit careful about lines, right, right, um, right. for a whole variety of reasons. And and that then please don't anybody get that confused with saying Paul is secretly a heretic, but he's a you know, a minister in good standing in the Christian Reformed Church on YouTube, that is certainly not the case. <laughs> but um, there is also a, I think Sam said it very well, there is also a way in which for our faith to be living, um, we had better wrestle with the questions. And in many ways to just, you can avoid them by sitting in a doctrinal castle and you can avoid them by running away from the faith. Yep. And both options are, in fact, I don't think faithful. And this is one of the things that I, so I, you know, my, again, I'm third generation minister. I went to Calvin College as a, um, you know, obviously right out of high school. And, um, you know, I, I wanted, when I got to Cal college, it was, okay, my parents aren't going to make me go to church anymore. And Calvin isn't going to make me go to church. And so one of the things I should probably do while I'm here is ask myself, 
is this whole being a Christian thing something I really want to keep at? And so, you know, part of what I did then in college was I started reading the Gospels and in, in some ways for myself for the first time and was rather surprised by a lot of what I found because it wasn't like American evangelicalism as such. And it wasn't like sort of conservative Christian reformed um, Calvinist dogma as such. Jesus was he was talking about things that we never talked about. Um, and they were fighting about things like healing on the Sabbath and, and all sorts of issues that weren't necessarily present in New Jersey when I was growing up. But yet <laughs> I found, um, I found the conversation that I saw in the Bible and the questions that arose quite, well, th these are interesting questions and there is a perennial aspect to them. We're all, mm -hmm. we're always dealing with many of these of these issues. And it might be in the form of, let's say, Christian Reformed Sabbatarianism in, in my day, or it might be in some of these issues that Jesus is wrestling with scribes and Pharisees and and people of his day. So the, the living faith is something that is always requiring some challenge and risk. I mean, it's in that sense, it's basically the definition of alive. And, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, and so as a, as a pastor, I have, I have tried to be, I, I have tried to, I have tried to not lose my soul in the ministry, which is something that can be done and is, is too often done that pastors lose their soul because they want to keep their job. Right. Um, but uh, no, and, and then I found in, you know, part of what, at least for me happened in this little corner was you know, many of the elderly people in my congregation, it's they're just, they're just not interested in a lot of the things that people in their 20s and 30s and 40s are wrestling with. And I'm not right. going to be, I'm not going to, you know, load that on these poor people. They're, <laughs> you know, they, they're dealing with health issues and they are, you know, they are, they are set to, you know, they are set for the next chapter. And my job for them is that. And my job for the homeless is another thing. But right. then with this little corner, I found many more interesting conversation partners who could wrestle with me in a whole bunch of areas that um that that also I needed for my own faith and for the um you know the continual work that Christ has in my heart. So I'll give you a little back. Yeah. No, that's exactly I resonate with that a lot. Um I used to tell my, I even, I think it was like the last day of class. I told my, I had this little spiel for my high school students. I think I probably did it in the college students too, where, where I said almost what you, almost what you exactly just said. I said, there's basically, here's the thing about religious faith today. You know, in light of all the pressures to, to, to not believe the other options, like you said, the other paths you can go, things you can value, prioritize. That's all there. I mean, it's all there. And one thing that does, I think, if I could speak broadly, distinguish our age from perhaps prior ages is that, and I think Peter Berger, a sociologist, pointed this out, um, but is that what used to be a kind of cultural decision is now often a personal decision. You don't have to go to church. Like you said, you don't have to go to church. I have to think about that for myself now. Do I want to? My family's not going to make me do that. My state isn't going to make me do that. My culture's not going to make me do that, whatever. There's, you know, my job's not going to make me do that. Uh, so so now it's a kind of 
it's kind of up to you. And that's that's kind of a an amazing thing because you're talking about fundamental questions and opinions and perspectives about all of life and your life in particular and 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 what you do or don't do or value or don't value. And that's a lot too. I remember one time I was in it was in a seminar setting with a with a with a freshman in college, like a group of 16 of them we were going through. It was like a great books thing and we we're discussing like the Odyssey or something. And at one point, this student kind of shocked me because he said, I was sort of getting the sense that they didn't really want to talk about something or I don't even know what it was. Just surprise, surprise. And of course, I'm probably, you know, a little jaded and maybe quick to assume, you know, oh, you just all were drinking last night or whatever. And you, you didn't read it or you didn't do the work. Uh, but this one kid spoke up at one point because I was sort of pushing it back and saying, you know, you're like, I want to hear from you. I'm trying to draw this stuff out in this conversation. And this kid, this kid said, you know, I think sometimes we're just not sure what to say because you've been studying this for a long time. And even you and other colleagues and other ministers and leaders and thought and philosophers or whatever don't agree. So why in the world would we think we have anything new insight into any of this? You know, that's like a really great, honest moment. And I think it kind of exemplified or sort of gave a little window for me into into the kind of zeitgeist, if it were, you know, as it were, sort of sort of the spirit or the or the dilemma, you might say, that we're all sort of born into. Which is this sort of, you know, how can I possibly have the resources to yeah. tackle these sorts of things? Yeah. On my own. And you know, and so, but here's the up, so that's that's a daunting side of it. And certainly, you know, here we could talk about Pascal was already talking about diversions. And most the most time that people then just flee from that. And that's what I said. I mean, I kind of tried to make it a challenge to the students said, look, there's two ways you can turn off your mind. You got two ways to do it. You could just be what you what you might want to call a, a strict conservative or traditionalist and say, all of the thinking has been done for me. All I have to do is receive it and regurgitate it. Okay, great. So now you don't have to do anything. You don't have to think about anything. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it, though, is, just, is exactly what you said. Throw off everything. Run away from the doctrinal castles or whatever. And and then just say and think whatever you want, whatever day is, whatever you feel, it doesn't matter. Well, that's great, too, because now you don't have to think. There's no intention there. You just sort of float around. Uh, and you're floating. You're floating with a whole nother crowd that is just as dogmatic as the one yes. you <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It turns out we're we're just religious basically by nature. You're always going to create a religion. Um, and so the and I, and what I would say is this. I said this to them, and I don't know if I don't always know how it lands, but it's like the real work of spirituality is to do neither. It's also, I might say, the work of becoming a true person. Really, really difficult work. The Jesuits call it discernment. Right? Other traditions would call it just sort of a pursuit of wisdom. Some of the stuff Ravik is talking about, he's he's laying that out too. Like this is the kind of a path you got to intentionally, and maybe you follow someone like like Socrates or, or or Jesus or whatever. So that's the kind of that's the kind of um, that's the sort of spirit that I want to um, put forward and, and kind of like engage in and with. You know, and so uh, yeah. Anyway, I'm just sort of agreeing with you, but <laughs> no, but you did it, but you did it beautifully. And well, and 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 again, part of what 
has been for me the the beauty of of what's sort of arisen over the last few years using YouTube and Discord and Twitter and all of these things is is finding. I mean, I made my first Jordan Peterson video basically because I wanted to find. I figured I'd find two or three other people that you know. C.S. Lewis, when he met, um, I forget the I forget the young man that he befriended. You know, oh, you like North things too. You know, it, it's finding someone else that that you can um, you can talk to along the way. Someone who's going to. Um, some someone is going to help you, and you're going to help them. I mean, that's Verveke's dialogos in many respects, and 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 part of what I so then the other thing that I've done in this little corner is is try to facilitate the starting of what I call estuary, and and an estuary movement. We've got some now in the U.S. and Canada and Europe and Australia, because I I, I said to myself. Why isn't it the case that pe- people? Now we had to put up a fence because I we had a homeless encampment starting. But anyway, um, generally speaking, for most of the years, people would knock on this door because they needed twenty dollars for gas or for food or for something, or they'd come in and they 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 just need to, an ear to unload their story on or something, and. Why is it that my church can be known as a place where you can go if you need food or clothing? or and, and praise God that my church is known for that. But why is it that my church is known for that? And my church isn't known for a place that you can go to actually have a spiritual conversation that can feed your soul. To me, that's what a church should be. But mm-hmm. but my frustration in many years of ministry, I've been here 25 years, is that a great many people, um, not without reason, would say the church is the last place I would want to go to have a such converse, have such a conversation because either someone's going to lay a program on me or lay <laughs> a catechism on me. And again, I'm not saying a catechism is a bad thing. But someone is going to lay something on me, and they're not going to give me that space in which I can come and ask a hard question. Yeah. And and find someone along the way with me in that hard question. Because again, for me, this is a big part of soul care. For me, this is pastoral care. Yeah. So. No, absolutely. And that that really like like I don't know any other way forward. Like that's that's the way I want to put it. Is like there's no. You no, know, I had some other conversation not long ago with someone, and I said this. I was like, look, you know, the students I had, college age, high school, like they've heard of the thing called the internet. <laughs> you know, we're not in the time where you're you're basically confined to whatever your local library has if you care about anything or whoever's just around to talk to in your neighborhood or at your local corner church or or school or teacher or whatever. You you I mean this is what we're doing here. It's what you're you've been doing. It's what TLC is. It's what but there's a lot of this. I mean, like they know they can go get a crash course on quantum theory in a 15 minute video with pictures and videos and like we're we're not going to win to put it that way. We're not going to win or let's just say we're not going to be winsome or interesting uh, by pretending like we can hole up yeah. in a bunker. It, yeah. it, that's those, in my opinion, at least that that's, 
that's over with. And so the question now is, how do you go forth with this spirit of, you know, adventure? Yep. 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 And it is an adventure because it is, you know, I remember when Sam first found me, it was like, you know, I could talk to a lot of people about a lot of Jordan Peterson stuff and steer clear of any, you know, doctrinal confessional boundaries, but Oh, now I got to talk to this guy who doesn't believe in the Trinity. Oh, what, what am I? Am I going to have to pull my books off the shelf and to brush up on church councils just to talk to Sam? Yeah. That's awesome. So I send him. So I send him to theologians who have to stay sharp on that anyway, because like, oh, you go, Sam, you talk Trinity with those people over there. Yes, 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 yes. Well, oh, that's good. well, this has this has been absolutely wonderful. And one of the things that I learned in this little corner, too, is to, you know, trust people. And of course, Nate says, oh, you got to talk to Jordan. And it's like, oh, <laughs> there's a lot of people I got to talk to. That's <laughs> a lot of them named Jordan. But right. <laughs> um, another Jordan. Yeah, another Jordan. But this has been this has been absolutely a delight. And um, yeah, I hope, you know, and I, I totally understand. I know what it's like to have little kids at home and to. Um, but I hope I hope that and, and to whatever degree you can kind of see what's going on in this crazy little network that's developing. Um, I hope. Uh, yeah, I hope um, I hope not only that, you know, you can find stuff here, but that it can be a um, it can be a place where, you know, you can probably find some good conversation partners for whatever it is. That's because I I'm, you've got me curious. I'd like to know more about this, this little group of. German idealists and because there's got to be because you know now I can see you're an interesting person there's got to be a reason why an interesting person would be interested in that <laughs> yeah. oh. yes so. yeah no that's great and I, I appreciate your uh your your hospitality and and generosity just like having me on and and I, I felt like even in the conversation with John Vervecchio was you know, Nate just sort of, he brought me in and I had just sort of learned about all this. And I kind of feel a little bit like, well, like you guys have been doing this a long time and John's got this long career and all this. It's like, I don't know. I don't, and I barely have time to like keep up with stuff. So yeah. anyway, I just, I've experienced a real generous spirit. So I, I appreciate that. Good, good. No. And, and that's true. There's, it, this thing has already grown far beyond what any, um that what any one person can actually track, but that's true of every church. That's true of every church, even small ones right. too. So right, right. That's, that's still how our lives are. So thank you, Jordan. Thank you again for your time and uh, God's blessing on um, on your on your girls, um, your daughters, and your wife. And uh, yeah, on I, I I can't wait to see what uh, what it is. Where else this whole thing goes? So yeah, thanks, Paul. All right, take care. Bye bye.